Awesome. Good morning. My name is Brad. It's good to be back. Thanks. Not Glenn Watson. Uh, though Dr. Watson was good, I heard. Uh, he was very <laughs> you were very pleased with what he had to say, which is good, because he was talking about the law. And you are all legalists. No. Uh, yeah. Uh, up until this point in the Gospel of Mark, we've been talking a lot about Jesus, which should come as no surprise, right? There's, there are four books in the Bible that are exclusively, completely about Jesus. They're the life of Jesus. They're these historical documents that are intentionally crafted to help us understand who he is. And so Mark, what we've seen is that he is, uh, he's crafting this story that, that starts with Jesus coming, uh, the good news of, of the gospel, it says. Uh, the beginning of the whole thing is about Jesus coming into a place like Galilee, a place that's forgotten and neglected. Uh, he comes to it and he proclaims good news about God, life-changing, life-altering news that the time is complete, that there's no more waiting, no more longing, no more hoping or expecting somebody else to come, somebody else to do uh, some rescuing for us, but instead, it's arrived, and it's arrived in Jesus, uh, this first miracle, like God with us, the kingdom of God with us. And he says that, that this kingdom, this rule, this reign, where God gets everything that he wants, where he repairs and restores every broken thing, he says, that kingdom is so close, you can touch it, the kingdom of God is at hand, and he intends to bring fully that peace, that uh, loving kindness kingdom to all of us. And then he says, repent and believe. All of this, this, this first thing that we talked about, is one of the most audacious claims that any human has ever made. Uh, we're, uh, you know, in a political climate, slightly. Uh, just a little bit at the moment. Miral and I were in Portugal for 10 days. We flew back. Uh, actually, as we were boarding the plane, there was this news in French about, uh, that I was trying to understand, but all I could see were these like, things popping up, and, and I was like, I think that French word means impeachment. So we live in a little <laughs> political time, right? And we are in a time of uh, many people promising things to us, uh, promising to, to repair what's broken. You know, uh, some candidates run and saying, hey, we're going to be the right character person. For this, for this job of making all of our lives better and whole and complete. Others promise us uh, things that will uh, alleviate whatever pains us, whatever debts we have, or those sorts of things. Others promise protection against those others that we're afraid of. What Jesus says in the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark uh, is completely different and beyond the most audacious promises that any other politician has ever made. He's saying that he is going to repair the very human heart existence, the very fabric of the cosmos that's broken and torn against itself. He's going to fix it. He himself. That the, that the reign and the rule of God is reaching into humanity. Uh, from then, we saw that Jesus uh, doesn't just make this huge claim. He then goes to ordinary people in all sorts of circumstances. He sees people uh, that are just fishermen now having this whole life purpose altered, becoming fishers of men, following him. 
Uh, he heals people who used to not be able to walk, now they can walk. People who were outcasts and lepers are now clean and pure and able to walk in community. Uh, a whole gamut of things that Jesus actually does. Uh, last week, I, I think my dad uh, talked about the law, how then Jesus comes and says, hey, the whole rules or the whole system by which you live on is not the true thing, but I am the true law. I am the true way. And so all of this, I think, uh, we've been talking about uh, is this truth or this statement that I've said over and over again, which is what you're doing with Jesus is the main thing happening in your life. What you will decide about with him, what you will believe about with him, what you will reject or accept when it comes to Jesus is the main thing happening in your life, whether you believe it or not. Like what you will uh, respond to when it comes to Jesus and how you respond is what's happening in your life because what Jesus is saying he is and what he's done is by far the biggest news there could ever be. And so maybe, uh, like, like me, you're wondering, well, if, if the main thing happening in my life is what I do with Jesus, what can I do with Jesus? Like, what are the choices? I mean, maybe in our heads, you're like kind of already assuming, you know, like, oh, this is what I need to do with Jesus. But what's interesting about the Gospel of Mark, here uh, in chapter 3, he gives us some choices, he shows us how people responded, what they, what they made of Jesus, what they did with him. Uh, some of you, I know, are a little more on the perfectionist side. Uh, some of you, not all. And you're wondering, what am I supposed to do with Jesus? You know, like, what's the right answer? Because that's, that's going to be my answer. Some of you also, though, I know, just some of you, are a little more independent free-flowing, carefree, and you're wondering, what unique expression can I have when it comes to Jesus? How can I handle Jesus in the most special, unique way? What Mark does is he gives us essentially four possibilities, and even the most creative among you, it'll all come down to one of these four choices, and the most perfectionist of you will also come down to one of these four choices. So let me, let me read Mark. Uh, chapter 3, 4, and then we'll, we'll talk about these options of what to do with Jesus. It says in chapter 3, verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because the crowd lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly offered them, uh, ordered them not to make him known. And he went up to the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, which is not a good nickname, sons of thunder, 
and Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. And then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and brothers came And standing outside, they sent to him and called to him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered, Who are my my mother and my brothers? And looking about to those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. That is God's word. The first choice, the first option of what to do with Jesus uh, is you can crush him or jostle him, the the word is. Uh, Or maybe the the more common word that we would use is you can use him. Uh, The first people, this crowd, this mass of people, they've heard, oh, he changes lives. He fixes lives. He's a miracle worker, a dream maker. He's a lifestyle saver. Like, let's go and let's get it from him. Uh, The the passage that in the very beginning describes this chaotic uh, situation where there's so many people pressing against him that he actually might get harmed physically. Uh, That they're they're all grabbing and pulling at his body, trying to, to somehow get the power of God from him, get some sort of healing from him, so much so that they believe that he might get crushed, and Jesus himself is saying, get a boat ready so that I might get out. Uh, it's, a, it's a mob situation. Uh, you can sort of imagine it. He's standing there, uh, and there's so many pre- people pressing against him, he might even fall into the water or get trampled on completely. You know, it's like when people are trying to buy TVs on the Friday after Thanksgiving, And everybody knows that you could buy that same TV on Monday after Thanksgiving, but we're all trying to press in and destroy the store where we can buy the TV that we could also buy at home even. Uh, And it it will just come to us. What these people did is, is they saw Jesus, they saw everything that I've said so far about him, and they said, wow, we could really use some Jesus. We could really uh, partake in this. Maybe he's the kind of fixer that we really need. 
Maybe he provides a service or a product or a therapy or a thing that would somehow we could just click right in and all will be better for us. The crowds wanted to use Jesus, which is a common thing or a common response that we have to him and what he does. Uh, A main proponent of this is a guy uh, named Joel Osteen. He's got great hair, great teeth, great smile, great voice. And he says this. He said, God loves you and wants to save you from life of mediocrity and small dreams. Therefore, if you believe in God and be obedient to him, God will give you a plan for your life that includes big dreams, self-esteem, favor, health, and wealth, influence, a better job, a positive self-image, and a fulfilled life free of negativity. One of the options available to you when it comes to Jesus is you can say, maybe I can use him for better self-esteem, a life free of negativity, uh, positive self-image, a better job, influence, I mean, this is, it's amazing he's from Houston, Texas, because he, it's like everything he's saying is just made for this place, right? I mean, everything he's promising. If you want to have more followers on YouTube, like, don't get better lights. Just be, obey God, and he'll give you influence. I think it's, that's, this is a, you know, a little bit more eloquent way of saying what this crowd believed as they were trying to pull you know, Jesus' arms from his body. Maybe if I just do something with him, he will give me what I want. And that option, I'm sure, uh, sounds far-fetched and bizarre. You know, like, I would never do that. I'm not that kind of person. I don't have good hair, good teeth, good voice. I'm not that kind of person that would use somebody else, especially God especially Jesus. But I think the reality is, is that it's not just something that people did once a long time ago, use, use Jesus. I think it's something that happens all the time. I think it's something that you could be doing with Jesus, even around these same terms. If I just obey and follow him, surely I'll be healthy. If I just obey and follow him, surely then my relationships will also be very good and fruitful. If I just do what he says and make him happy, maybe I can get three wishes and use them however I want. It's a a plausible use or response. But that just doesn't seem like the full thing about what Jesus is saying. I mean, when he says, repent, forsake all other hopes, and just believe in me, and my kingdom come, it doesn't seem like he's saying, repent and believe in my ability to give you all these good things that you hope for. He's actually, it seems like he's saying, stop hoping in influence. Stop hoping in health and wealth. Stop hoping in better eyes and better teeth and those sorts of things to make you content and well. I'm the only one that can make you content and well. I think if Jesus was alive today, he would say, do not you know, categorize me just as some sort of perfect app that can fix your whole life. Then there's another choice. 
there are these scribes, these religious leaders. They're the, they're the lawyers. They're the people that know what's going on. They're the people that are smart and brilliant. Uh, and they come after seeing what Jesus has done, all the forgiveness that he's done, all of the, the conflict that he's had with the law. And they come to him and they say, you are demon-possessed. You are the prince of Satan. They said, we believe in some sort of incarnation has happened here. But it's not the incarnation of God, it's the incarnation of evil. Like evil personified. That is who Jesus is. They saw the power. They saw the the miraculous signs. And how they made sense of it was, well, it must be from a wicked sorcerer intent on doing evil. Uh, Richard Dawkins is an author and pseudoscientist, and I say that with the much deep respect as I can muster, but he writes good books, or books that sell, Uh, and one of the things that he said, one of his powerful quotes is he says, the world would be better off without Jesus. It's one of the things that he says. Uh, In a speech that he gave, Uh, Once, he said, it was in the 90s, so some of these things are a little dated. He said, it is fashionable to wax apocalyptic about the threat to humanity posed by the AIDS virus or mad cow disease and many others. He says, but I think a case can be made that faith is one of the world's great evils, comparable to smallpox virus, but harder to eradicate. He says... Uh, smallpox killed hundreds of thousands of people. AIDS, which is an epidemic that's overtaken an entire con- continent. Uh, mad cow disease, which was really not that big of a deal, but at the time it was pretty shocking. He says, faith, faith is just as big of a problem, or worse, it's even harder to deal with. The world would be better without Jesus. Uh, In his book, God Delusion, he describes and he outlines how it's not just that some people believe in God and have some sort of faint idea about him and they're practicing it off in their cloister somewhere. He says the problem is belief in God itself. So there's a whole spectrum, right, that we can have when it comes to atheism or those sorts of things. Uh, Some of us can say, hey, you do what you want to do. If you want to believe in God, that's cool. Then other people would say, hey, you know what, like, uh, you can believe in God, just don't bring God into anything. And then there's people that say, hey, you really shouldn't believe in God. And then there's people that say, if you do, you're the problem. That's, that's the spectrum. The scribes were like that. They said, Jesus isn't just here and around doing some nice things. He's actually evil. Evil. And it seems far-fetched, maybe, to you as well. I would never be that person. You know, I'm not a person who thinks that, that Jesus himself is evil. I mean, all the paintings, all the pictures of, that we have of him, you know, he's either a really sweet baby and this, you know, being held by this, you know, beautiful woman with gold around her head. Like, that's a, I'm not, I don't think that baby's evil. Or maybe the other really common one is, you know, he's standing there with his shirt off and he's really well built and he's got a little sheep hung around his, his shoulders and we'd say, well, I don't hate that Jesus. 
or Jesus even stretched out on a cross with, with, with blood coming out, and it's, it's this symbol of sacrifice. I would never hate the work of Jesus and say that it's evil, but I think we do. It's a haunting possibility, but I think it's real. We, we observe what he does, as the scribes do. We hear what he says, as these people had. And they say, yes, there's power there. And this is what I think it is for them. There's power there, but we're not in charge of it. We don't control it. It's outside of our realm. It's outside of, of our influence. He's not, they, they realize, a genie in a bottle that we can just ask wishes for. They understand Jesus has his own mind, his own intent, his own will, his own way, and, and that is terrifying. And whenever he strays from whatever we might like him to do, or whatever we expect that he should do for our lives, it's not just that, that God is uh, not living up to the task, it's that Jesus and what he's doing is bad. When he's not coming through, how we want. That's what it was for the scribes. They wanted him to come and, and conquer the Romans and do a whole bunch of really great stuff in the temple. And instead, he's out there eating with sinners and tax collectors. What does he think he's doing? Maybe for you, it's, I thought he would, would come and like actually heal me from whatever it's afflicting me, and he's not. I thought he would come and, and give me the kind of community and peace and love and all of those things, and yet it seems like he keeps asking me and calling me into these places that I do not enjoy. He's evil. We kind of place ourselves, I think, when it comes to Jesus, uh, in the, the critics column section of the internet website, news website. And we hear his words, we're surprised by them, and we write critical reviews about his goodness. Or uh, Mirella has found this place online that, that shares people's reviews of historical sites around the world, like people's Yelp reviews. Uh, one of the ones that she's shared that is hilarious uh, is someone went and visited uh, Stonehenge, and their review was one star, outdated, could use some, a touch-up on paint, But that's, I think that's kind of what we do with God. We're not analyzing what he does and what he said and what he's doing now and saying, this is bad, this is good. This is evil, this is good. Which I don't think as well seems exactly right. Uh, it doesn't seem like, while that is a choice, you know, you can be Richard Dawkins if you want, I would definitely recommend reading a different atheist if you want to explore that, because uh, he's not, he like reads a lot of Wikipedia articles and then puts them into his books, but he's good at writing. Anyway, you can go that route. But what Jesus is doing doesn't actually seem that evil. He's, people that couldn't walk can walk. People that uh, were plagued by sin are forgiven. People that were cast out are brought in. 
doesn't seem actually that evil. Even some of our deepest held beliefs in this country about including other people can really be traced back to the way that Jesus included people at his parties and at his table. Doesn't seem that evil. In fact, uh, Jesus' response to these people is kind of in line with that same thought. He says, if I was Satan, why would I be hitting Satan? If I was a demon, why would I be combating other demons? That's what he's saying. And then this, I think, is just really important for us because this is one of the most quoted things that Jesus ever says. He says, when he says, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand, I just want us to understand this just from a little pet peeve of mine because that gets brought up all the time, you know, like after the election in a year from now, someone will post that, you know. Hey, a kingdom divided against itself can't stand. Let's be united, right? Jesus is referring to hell. He's saying, uh, if, if I was Satan, why would I be going up against Satan? Like that doesn't, why would I be battling within myself against my own empire of evil and wickedness? He's saying, I'm, like, if I was Satan, why would, why would that even happen? If I was evil, why would I be combating evil? And then he says this thing that I think is uh, quite hopeful, actually. He says, no one can go into a strong man's house, like the, the city village lord, you know, like, you know, mafia boss. No one can go into that person's house and steal everything they have unless first they tie up that person and then they have free reign and they can bring anything they want out of the house. Jesus is saying, I'm not Satan fighting Satan. It's actually completely different. I'm going in to this strong man that's had a grip on the whole world, evil itself, and I'm tying it up. I'm binding it together. I'm going to leave it in the corner, and then we're going to take everything we want out of it. What Jesus is describing is a picture of him leaving hell itself with a whole host of people behind it saying, they are free, they're captives, no more. That's what he's saying he's about. Not actually evil. And then he says something that I think is pretty haunting. He says, I will forgive people of everything. There's not a, there's not a sin that, 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 isn't, that is too terrible or too awful or too uh, grotesque. There's not even a blasphemy, a, a saying of something so false, so outrageous that I won't forgive. Except, he says, if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, for that, there's no path. There's no way towards forgiveness. And he says, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. He's demon-possessed. He rebukes them. And he says, look, you cannot slander the work of God and still expect to be okay with God. You cannot, on one hand, say what he does, what Jesus has done is evil and wicked and not good, but I still want to get in on God and his stuff. Jesus is saying it just does, it's just impossible. There's no way to look at the life of Jesus and what he's done and say, that's bad, but I still, I want to find some other way in which I can still be good with God. It kind of harkens back, it's a different sort of statement, but it's a similar statement that he makes a few chapters earlier when he says, I didn't come for the healthy who don't need a doctor. The people who say, I'm all good, 
I'm fine. I don't need you, Jesus. He says, well, then I, I can't have come for you. I can only come for the sick and the sinner and the person in need. It's very similar. What he's, Jesus is saying here is, if you reject my work and who I am and what I'm about, and if you say that, that what the Spirit is doing in me is actually evil and possessed, then how will you expect to be forgiven through it? Does that make sense? It's kind of crazy. But it's logical, right? I mean, it even uh, makes sense. I think, at least. Just for the quite like little anecdote, uh, I don't believe, and it's really hard to find serious people who do believe, that if you just say something mean about the Holy Spirit, you're like damned to hell forever. Like, that's not, that's not a thing. What Jesus is talking about is you can't re- reject the work of the Spirit and still be okay with God. There's no path. So you could say he's evil, which sounds scary. Then another option is he could be crazy. His parents, uh, his mom, his brothers see what Jesus is doing, they see what he's saying, and they come to him and say, he's out of his mind. He's a madman, a lunatic, uh, which I think is a very uh, easy kind of response. I mean, here's a person who's walking around saying he's God, walking around saying, I'm, I'm the king of the world. I mean, he's a, he's a poor man in his mid-30s, wandering the desert, talking to people, saying some really bizarre things to people that he doesn't even know, like, come and follow me, give your whole life to me. Like, that's maybe the work of a madman. which I definitely think is something we can do. Like, he's just crazy. Like, Jesus is just crazy. That's it. It's simple. It's cut and dry. But also, doesn't seem like what he's been doing to this point is the work of a lunatic. In fact, in chapter 2, when he's teaching really well, the scribes and the crowds say, wow, look at how he's teaching with such authority. They were by the fact the people who were actually the authority on such a matter. They're listening to him teach and they're saying, wow, we've never heard anyone teach like this before, this clearly, this powerfully, this pointedly. I'm not sure he is crazy. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book Mere Christianity, kind of sums up the choice before us. He says, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Those are the choices. In verse 13, he he does something that's not P. 
people responding to him. He goes up to a mountain, and it says, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. He called to him, and then he appointed them. He made them. He fashioned them. The, the word here for appointed, which sounds really high and important, you know, like being appointed, is actually the, the normal, just kind of vulgar word in Greek for make. He made them. He called and he made them. They didn't do anything. They weren't special. Uh, I would even imagine that there's some of the same people who were trying to grab Jesus' body and tear him limb for limb, trying to get something from him. But, they came, but he called to them, and he made them. And this is a really common pattern for Jesus. He calls, and he makes. He calls to the fishermen and makes them fishers of men. He calls to the tax collector and he makes them friends. This is his pattern. It's even bigger than that. It's the pattern of, of the whole God of scriptures throughout the Old Testament. The beginning, the first of the story is God calls out and God makes. He says, let there be light and there's light. He says, let us uh, make man in our image and there behold in front of him is humanity. He calls, he speaks and he makes. It even continues throughout the story with Abraham. He calls out to Abraham, and he says, come, go to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a family. I'll make you into a, a blessing always forever family. God calls, he speaks, he makes, he fashions. The same is true uh, with the people in Exodus. In the, the creation of the Ten Commandments, he says, look, listen, I rescued you and I carried you out on eagle's wings. So you will be my people and I will be your God. I will make you into a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. It's how God works and continually works. He says, he speaks, he calls out, and he makes, and he forms, and he fashions a people. So here Jesus is speaking and he's making them into a people. This word apostles is just a fancy word or an untranslated word for sent ones. He called them so that they might be with him and so that he might send them. He calls them together and he makes them into a, a people. And this was not a group of people that should have been friends. Some of them uh, wanted to join the Roman Empire. Some were out in the desert, you know, sharpening up their little pitchforks so that they could fight the empire. Some were just nobodies. And yet here they are, all together, fashioned and formed so that they might be with him and then be sent out by him with the power to push back against darkness and sin. And that's, I think, the remarkable thing about what we do with Jesus and what you're doing with Jesus. What he is and what he's been doing and what he's all about has been calling you and bringing you to himself. It's all about taking you where you are and who you are and what you've going on and bringing you into his 
kingdom and his existence, that he would envelop or surround your entire world, your entire life, and that he would be with you. Transferring you from one world to another. Uh, Mike Cosper, who is a fantastic writer, he says this. He says, the gospel transfers us from the familiar territory of self-centered living into a glorious wilderness, a beautiful and strange place where we are invited to explore the wonders of who God is and what he's done. This is what Jesus does in chapter 3. It's all his work. It's pretty phenomenal. And then lastly, they're hidden in this entire passage, this long passage, I think are five words that make up the response of a lifetime to Jesus. It's here in verse 12. And they came to him. And they came to him. Jesus calls to them, and they came to him. Pretty ordinary words. Some of the best words are ordinary ones. Bound together, linked together, this is the response to Jesus, always and forever, that we would come to him. Come and see, come and taste, come be known, come uh, as you are, come as a sinner, come as a thief, Come as a selfish jerk. Come as a person with bad hair and bad teeth and a bad voice. Come as a person who reads Wikipedia articles and bases their entire atheism around them. Come. Come powerless. Come feeble. Come with questions. Come with hope. Come without hope. Jesus calls to us to make us into a people, and we come to him. The main thing happening in your life is what you're doing with Jesus and what you will do with Jesus. When it says, and they came to him, is a phrase of a process, of longevity, of commitment. Now, Jesus throughout is going to say, come and follow me. Come stand close to me. Over the course of days, over the course of weeks, over the course of years, a lifetime, you will experience the kingdom of God and this apprenticeship to an abundant life. Come, be with me, walk with me day by day. Not all at once. Uh, doesn't, Jesus doesn't promise. He doesn't say, come and, come and respond. Uh, and when you finally, you know, figure this all out, you'll be great and you'll have a certificate that says, I responded well to Jesus. Instead, you'll, you'll come and have a following that's made for a lifetime. This invitation comes without expiration, on double sides. It continues on and on, always calling, always asking, come and I will make but also even as you say, I will come, it continues on and on and on. He doesn't offer a six-month personal development plan uh, or really good uh, certificates that you can get. Instead, he's saying, I will be with you to the very end. There's nothing that you can do apart from me, 
and apart from my daily stewardship of your whole life. Will you go to him? Will you come? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for uh, your grace and your, your kindness to us. I thank you for entering our history, interrupting our lives. I thank you for coming to us and saying, come. Jesus, I thank you for binding up evil and leading out a whole plundering of the deepest darkness. Jesus, I pray for us as a body that we would experience hope in life, that we would know what it is that we hope for, that we would know you, Jesus, that we would come and that we would be with you, and that we'd be sent out by you to face the darkness. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.